Hi, I'm Harut Markarian, and this is Mobility and Inclusion, the show where we share the powerful stories of people with disabilities and daring entrepreneurs making waves in our world. From technological innovations to best practices in business, we'll learn what it really means to live in an inclusive and universally designed environment. Welcome, everybody, to a new episode of Mobility and Inclusion. My guest today is Christopher Loriano. Uh, Chris has graduated with a Bachelor of Arts degree in, in music at Rhode Island College in 2015. Chris has also been certified as a peer specialist in the state of Massachusetts since 2016. He has lived experience in both dealing with anxiety and trauma and in living as an autistic person. As a result of his lived experiences, Chris came into peer support work with the desire and passion to support people receiving services in creating their own life path and to help create meaningful systemic change in both the mental health and public health systems. Chris currently works as the director of the recovery education and learning program at Bay Cove Human Services in Boston, Massachusetts, and has been in this role since 2019. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Harut, for having me. It is our pleasure to have you. It's my pleasure to have you. Um, before we move on any further, let's uh, define some terms for our audience. Like, what is anxiety? What is trauma? And everybody knows what, uh, what autism is, but why don't we give some type of context to these words so we can go on with our discussion? Sure. Um, so for me, the way that I would define anxiety first off is um, it's, it's based off of something that is either situational or something that might happen um, from within ourselves in the body um, that causes us to feel um, certain sensations in our body, um, whether it's feeling um, different, you know, shakes or tremors in different areas of body of our body, like our chest or stomach or so on. Um, or if it's just anxiety from something that's just kind of happy, happened internally. Mm -hmm. um, for, me, for me, when I've had anxiety, I've had it through different social situations, uh, especially as someone who is autistic. And um, that has caused me to, you know, get into situations that ended up sort of derailing um, my progress in terms of um, bettering myself and evolving myself for a while. Um, so anxiety is anything that does affect us in those ways um, where we have th those sensations and it can be from any type of situation that's life related that anyone goes through, or it can just be something that just happens out of nowhere. Um, and then trauma is something that um, can physically and mentally happen to us because of specific situations um, or because of anything we may have gone through in our life. So it may be from any type of abuse that we may have experienced, any type of emotional or physical neglect or other forms of neglect. Um, and also any type of, you know, situation that has caused a lot of dysfunction. So if you're a child that has parents that have gone through a divorce, or if you've had family members that are incarcerated, or even if you've had certain mental health challenges that because of the way you've been treated by the mental health or public health systems, that those things also cause trauma as well. 
um, along with using substances and, and many other different types of situations. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to kind of emphasize a little bit more on the systemic piece too, because mm -hmm. a lot of times when people talk about anxiety and trauma, a lot of those things are, um, those topics are seen as things that are embedded from within. And in some ways that is true, but we also have to consider that for people receiving services, how they're often treated by the mental health and public health systems, especially when they're looked at from a fear-based or deficit-based lens that they're not capable of making decisions in their own lives or that they are seen as dangerous or any other type of stereotypical biased statements that when they're getting that constant messaging in the environment when receiving services, it ends up sticking with them for many years, decades, and even their whole lifetime. So that systemic disenfranchisement, if you will, is also another form of trauma. Um, and even just identifying yourself as um, either, you know, a black, a black person, you know, being black, queer, trans, I mentioned autistic, blind, deaf, or really anything else, and how the system treats us um, is, is also something that causes trauma. So Trauma and anxiety happen in many different forms for many different reasons. Got it. Wow. You said a lot of things and I have a lot of questions to you. Um, but let me go back to, so you named several, uh, several cases. Uh, you said black, queer, um, you know, autistic. And basically the way either you identify yourself or you are identified by the eyes of the public, right? Um, and so I have, I have a, a bit of issue when people say I'm black and they, they have a perception versus people say I'm, I don't know, white and they have a perception, I'm queer and there's a perception. At the core of all of this, there's the person, the spiritual being, which is the most important thing, right? Uh, so why do you think, in your experience, um, either the individual or the public or the system as a whole is choosing to perceive those nuances versus the true being? Well, I think, um, I mean, there's many different answers for this, and it really depends on each person's experience. But um, I think a lot of that has to do with the way that we are educated about mental health, substance use, trauma, and all these other life-altering experiences that I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of times, you know, as I said before, um, whether it's the mental health or public health system, uh, and this goes back to how people are often looked at for the past several centuries, especially those that have had mental health challenges. If you really think of those time periods, going back to as far back as the 16 to 1700s, and maybe even further back than that, anyone that was perceived to be different than normal, whether it was mental health or anything else, the answer was often institutionalization and often people being treated in such barbaric ways that, that for a lot of people also included death. Um, and in some ways, 
there has been thankfully some changes that have happened along the way, but also another factor that is more recent is going back to the 1970s, more so the 1980s with big pharmaceutical companies that have been involved in you know, different sources of media, such as medication commercials that you often see for those that have different mental health diagnostic labels put on them. Mm-hmm. And a lot, of, and how Western society views that is let's give people medications because medications are the only answer. And that often isn't true for the majority of people, if not really anyone. Um, oh, I, I 100% agree with that. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not in the, in your environment, but I completely uh, disagree with applying medication to treat symptoms. Because as, as I said, we're, we're treating symptoms. We're not going after the root cause. And I'm going to come to that. I'm sorry I cut you off. But I think you, okay. brought, you brought up a very good point in terms of, um, you know, treating people with medication, Right. Um, a lot of times we're only treating the symptom and we're not even attempting to take a whack at the root cause of the, the individual's true problems or the true challenge. So what's your experience and how, how I, I guess, what are you doing differently to change the system? Because that's a systemic issue right now, right? Uh, and you talk yes. about that. You talk about that in your uh, in, in your opening in your bio a little bit how you're attempting to change the uh, mental health system and the, uh, the basically the, the the system that surrounds uh, the public on how to treat them. So what are you doing in your current role um, in changing that? Well, I think the the very first thing that that I'm doing, and it's not just myself, but also my supervisor who works with me in the real program at Bay Cove and a bunch of other peer support team members that I work with, what we're all doing first off is really um, continuously educating um, our the staff that we work with about um, different aspects of you know what the mental health system is like and how it typically functions. And when we do that, we mention and emphasize greatly on um, the education about how the mental health system often puts pressure on providers to get people to do something, whether it's to accept a service or treatment, because they're getting that pressure from the system to get the the people that they're supporting to do so, which Mm -hmm. oftentimes isn't helpful. So we educate staff about how that kind of thing is more harmful than helpful to the majority of people. Um, and we also talk about many different concepts, such as the concept of self-determination when it comes to a person's life journey or recovery. So letting people make their own decisions on what their life path looks like and being able to honor their dignity of risk, meaning instead of looking at people as those that are at risk and need to be kept safe, changing that language to looking at them as people that have gone through a lot and are, and are probably still going through a lot rather than something being wrong with them. Uh, because a lot of times when you think of the stuff that we hear in the media, how we're educated about mental health and even substance use, it's often, the blame is often put on the person as though they're the problem and there's something wrong with them. <laughs> so, you know, educating them about what, you know, looking at it from the lens of what happened to you versus what's wrong with you, quote unquote, 
is one of the first steps. Um, so we talk about that, um, you know, in the different programs that we work with, with staff all the time, and we encourage collaborative dialogue and we let them ask us questions about what we mean by those concepts and how they apply to the way that, the different way that we provide care in the system. Um, and in the training, in a training that I also do uh, as part of the real program, we talk about this stuff a lot so that those that have lived experience with receiving services from the system are going into peer support or clinical work, depending on their choosing, with that based information in mind so that they can use that uh, to be able to um, help us do effective work and to be able to change the system in many ways. That, that's uh, that's great. Uh, it's great that you're um, educating your uh, teachers in approaching the uh, challenge in the correct way. Uh, I love that. And um, so uh, let me ask you a quick question. Uh, how, what, at what age you realize that um, Chris has anxiety and trauma, is going through trauma? At, at what age you realize that this stuff? Well, first off, I would say that um, I didn't have any diagnostic labels attached to those two things, um, but I was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome at the age of three. Um, so that's when some of the characteristics of me um, being autistic started was when I was around the age of two, and then the diagnosis was there at, at the age of three. So this is going back to 1993 when I was diagnosed with that. As far as anxiety and trauma are concerned, um, I've had different um, traumatic situations throughout my life uh, in when I was very little and in middle school. Um, and I think, and that started around the ages of between 10 and 12. Um, there was one situation where I was um, bullied by a bunch of classmates that I went to school with during the winter time um, for being different, for not responding socially in the way that they were. And so I was often teased and made fun of, and I often thought about not wanting to live. Um, and then during my early 20s, so going back to 2010, um, I was in college at the time. And this is where I noticed for the very first time that my anxiety had ramped up because of different social situations I was in where I was coming to terms with my sexuality as a gay man. And at the same time, I had a crush with a guy that I went to college with. And, um, you know, we made up many years later and we're now friends, but at, during that period, he treated me so horribly um, after kind of professing like how I was feeling about him. And, um, I'll admit, you know, there were times that I kind of did certain things that were a little bit eccentric, but not alarming. Like I would stare at him for a little bit um, and he wouldn't like that very much. And um, he had said something to me that was um, really harmful in that um, I remember, you know, it, it was regarding his desire that if he was a different gender, that he would have reported me for harassment. That was the, the first instance in a long time since middle school where I had experienced any kind of trauma. Um, and the effects of that lasted for 
approximately six to seven years until he and I finally met up and we both owned our parts and made up. Um, uh, just just and, to clarify, was was this person also uh, gay? Yes. Okay. All right. Yeah. Continue, please. Yeah. And and uh, I also, at the same time when the, all this was happening, I was also dealing with a situation with a um, a music education professor um, at the college that I went to that um, really traumatized me in many different ways. Where um, you know, I would ask her for advice and she would not give it. I would ask her for support. She wouldn't be there for me. She was very manipulative in the way that she talked to me. Um, and she would do often things that not only didn't make a lot of sense in terms of the way she treated myself and other classmates, but in ways that were emotionally harmful to many people. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I dealt with both of those things amongst other related social social situations. And during that time period in college, that's where my anxiety and trauma really ramped up. And it got to the point that um, I ended up having to seek therapy in 2014 um, to really process everything that was going on because none of it was making any sense. Um, and so at, it was at the age of 20 that all of that stuff started. And at the age of 24 was when I saw therapy and then eventually through running a leadership organization, mainly for the purpose of getting out of the, the music ed environment, um, I ended up being networked into peer support, which I eventually started doing at the age of 25. And so both therapy and peer support were ways that were very healing to me in terms of helping me to process the anxiety and traumatic situations that I was going through in my life at that time. That, that's great. I'm, gl I'm glad you, uh, you know, overcame that, 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 that challenge of yours. Um, so you said it took that trauma lasted about six to seven years. Is that correct? Did I hear that correctly? Yes. And at what point you, during the, did, did you wait till year seven or six to say, okay, I need to consult with someone about this you know and I, and the reason i'm asking is for our audience in case someone is experiencing such a stuff they when they experience such a thing do they immediately go and seek help or you know what's that sweet spot i guess to not completely harm you but say that oh there's a problem and i need to address it you know where's that sweet spot uh, so the sweet spot for me, just, I think generally speaking, and this was actually more so, um, for the fourth year out of the six to seven year period was where I was going through so much all at once that it was a miracle that academically I still did well, <laughs> despite what I was going through, but deep inside internally and emotionally, I had gotten to a point where everything just felt too much. It just, it was too much. Yeah, yeah. And so when I was at that point, there was an inner voice inside of me that was part of the fight that I always had that said, this is Chris, this is not your life. Like there, there has to be something that is better than this. Um, and so that just that listening to that inner voice for, in terms of my experience was what worked for me in, in terms of seeking help. So therapy helped me to really process 
through, you know, through having a different life outlook in terms of not only understanding analytically why something was happening to me, but also being able to embrace different life perspectives enough so that the more I was exposed to that, the more I could challenge myself head on through getting into new adventures and doing new and different things I didn't expect to do. Mm-hmm. And through all of, and then also peer support was really helpful in a non-clinical way of just being able to just have a safe space to talk about these certain things that I couldn't talk to my therapist about. Um, and both of those things together were really things that um, really helped me to further challenge myself. And so because I had done those things, by the time that the six to seven year period was almost at its end, um, because of what I had done through both therapy and peer support, I felt so encouraged and I felt such an inspiration of hope that anything was possible for me beyond what I was going through internally inside that um, I ended up eventually being in a space where, you know, this person in college that I had an issue with reached out to me. And even though I was nervous and I talked with my therapist about it, I was able to um, realize through that conversation with him that I had come such a long way in terms of processing what was going on and giving myself the safe space to do so on my own terms. And so then that alone gave me the courage to start making amends with this person. And then that started a chain of making amends with my past, either through other people or entities or environments. And I'm happy to say that that coincidentally, as of last year, I, all the stuff that happened to me during my years in college, I was able to almost completely heal from that right before the pandemic started. Mm -hmm. So this was definitely a a multi-year journey for me. And, um, it was so when after all the work that I had done and all the things I went through in my life and constantly challenging myself over the years to be like, no, this doesn't have to be my life. I don't have to be in misery. Um, I can be curious. I can ask questions. I can challenge authority. I can challenge other people and myself. Um, that's really what ultimately brought me into a place of serenity and peace. Okay. Um, I'm glad you're at that place right now, by the way. But um, if for one reason or the other, that person who reached out to you, let's say, to make amends, right, um, mm-hmm. didn't, didn't reach out at all, were you going to be able to overcome that hump? Do you, I mean, in, in your opinion, what effect does that have? So that's a good question. Um, you know, at first, because I was actually asked this by my therapists a few years ago, actually, and through other people in my life. So um, I think if you had asked me that a few years ago, I probably would not have accepted that result in general. But now, um, because of sort of where I'm at in my life and with, you know, everything that I've achieved and that I've over overcome, I was able to get to a place where I've healed through most of the anxiety and the trauma. Um, And there's still other personal things that I'm dealing with, but being able to move through those situations has led me to um, realize the importance of accepting any outcome 
that happens and that there's more than one form of acceptance and closure from my past, from all Mm -hmm. those chapters. Mm -hmm. So, so today I would say that I'm okay if a person didn't approach me um, to make amends that I would make amends with, with the situation by, you know, doing other things that I enjoy that may not relate to the situation or even, or even just to physically walk around the environment in which it happened and create my own peace in some way. I'm, I'm, I'm really glad you're saying what you're saying. Um, Cause I do a lot of uh, personal development, personal growth, mindset growth. Right. And a lot of things I say to people is, um, you know, you are a unique being, right? Whether it's you, Chris, or anyone else, me, uh, those who are listening to the show, every single one of us is unique. And we shouldn't get hung on our past. Our past is our past. We learn from them, we move forward, right? And we should definitely not bet our happiness or our future on people. We all, you always bet on yourself and you always give attention to the thoughts that are, that are in your mind because that is ultimately driving results through your body. So if you, if you allow me to give you a, a friendly advice, uh, and I'm not a therapist, but I've talked to enough people to be able to you know, share a few things. Um, and I always tell people, there are three things that matter in your being, your, your mind, your body, and your spirit, all of which have nothing to do with another person. This is purely yours, right? Yes, we do have sensory factors that attract inputs from the outside world, but you have your higher faculties like your imagination, your will, your perception, uh, your intuition, that makes you a higher being, right? So if you use this higher faculties of your mind effectively, you can come out of any situation, any trauma, any anxiety. And I'm not, don't get me wrong, I'm not downplaying the situation that you've gone through. But, and what I'm saying is definitely not easy to do. It, it requires practice. It requires constant effort, right? It's, it's like everything else. It's not easy. But there is a way and there is a solution and you should definitely not get hung on the past. The past is the past. And I always say there's no good, there's no bad, no bad. The situation is the situation. Whether it's good or bad, it's your perception, it's your experience, right? So make your own experience moving forward. Now you know what you want, what you don't want and keep going up and keep going moving forward. And that's why I, I usually say, and I'm, I hope I impacted you in a, in a, a little bit in, in, in what I said. Thank you for that. And, and I appreciate that. And, you know, and one thing I wanted to kind of emphasize is kind of partially what you said earlier, too, as far as different things working for different people. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, we talk at Bay Cove, we talk a lot about self-determination and dignity of risk and so on. Um, You know, my experience was different in such that I always had that inner fight inside of me that was thankfully guiding my intuition to make changes in my life. Um, But when we're supporting 
whether we're working as a peer specialist or as a clinical provider, we often encounter people that because of the systemic disenfranchisement that they've experienced throughout a lot of their lives, that a lot of them have not even gone into that discovery period yet. And so it's important that we form connections with these people and form, you know, mutual relationships with them in ways where it, that are beyond discussions of diagnosis and treatment, but just being able to share pieces of our stories with them and in terms of letting them share those with us. And then really just having a conversation, getting to know them from scratch and being able to have conversations about what could be possible in each other's lives so that we're both mutually learning from each other. Mm -hmm. And having those types of conversations is where the discovery often happens. Absolutely. Um, but it take, but it, it takes a while because of the length of time that they've received services and a lot of the, the lived experiences that they went through as a result. So it's important to not pressure them to evolve at a specific time that it's really important to kind of let them create that path on their own terms and to meet them where they're at. Absolutely. Uh, that's very well said. Uh, thank you for sharing your thoughts on that. Um, let's, I want to move back to Bay Cove a little bit. Um, sure. and you know, they focuses on uh, individualized services, right? And so I want to, uh, hone in on the individualized services because there's various types of individuals with various types of challenges, right? And I'm assuming this is why it's, it specifically says the word individualized services, correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, so you help, uh, you know, people who are facing challenges associated with uh, developmental disabilities, mental illness, homelessness, um, aging related needs, uh, drug use, uh, and alcohol use, right? So in, in your experience, what is the percentage? So these five, six categories that I mentioned, for example, are they right now in the United States or in, let's say, Boston? Um, are they equally spread out? Meaning that we have like 20% of the, of, of people in mental illness, 20% homelessness, 20% aging related needs and 20% drug and alcohol. Is that, is that how it is or it varies? Um, I would say that it's, it varies and it's often a mix, um, in terms of specifically, you know, with the real program in and of itself, which by the way, the real program is an acronym for, the Recovery Education and Learning Program. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I deal with people that have all different types of lived experience, uh, lived experiences, regardless of whether it's a previous thing or if it's something that is current at the time. Um, and you know, keep in mind that this program, because we have the um, the peer support and direct care training in our internships, it's an entry level program um, because of the situations that um, a lot of people that we support often experience. So mm -hmm. it's it's more of a mix that for some, you know, they may have experiences with mental health and substance use. Sometimes it's one or the other. Sometimes it's all of them in combination with trauma or other life-altering experiences that are otherwise not named. Um, so I would say overall, in terms of the real program in and of itself, it's a mix. So it's, it's hard to kind of give a percentage. Got it. But then if but then, of course, you know, Bay Cove as, a, as an entire agency has many different type of service programs 
um, for those that have different types of experiences and, and those are more um, segregate, if you will, in some ways. Awesome. Okay. Uh, perfect. That's, uh, that's well said. I, uh, I wanted to clarify that a little bit and, you know, um, really emphasize what Bakov is doing and the great, great work that they're doing. Uh, because individualized service is really important, uh, you, you know, especially in the, in, in the community of people with disabilities, uh, you can't do a boilerplate solution, right? This, this fits for everybody. It, it doesn't work that way. Uh, I mean, if, if it was going to be that way, of course, things would have been easier, right? But it's not the case. You know it, it's not the case. I know it's not the case. Um, now, just for, as, as a last word, how are you or Beethoven in general uh, attempting to revolutionize the system? Hmm. Well, I know I, I talked a little bit about, um, you know, collaborating with colleagues about different concepts like self-determination and dignity of risk. So that's one way. Um, also, uh, through one specific longer term mental health service program, we have peer specialists that do uh, something called the peer moment, which we take about 15 to 20 minutes of each and every team meeting to have discussions about these topics, as well as about certain things that are going on um, in the group homes that should not be happening, whether it's under the vein of human rights violations or practices that kind of walk the line. And we have collaborative discussions about ways to address those things. Um, and we talk about a bunch of other topics that we let colleagues ask us questions and it gives us a chance to really constantly learn from each other every week. Um, and the peer support and direct care training, which is a four week training that the real program does is another way that really helps to create that systemic change. Um, where we talk about what goes into working as a peer specialist, as well as what goes into working as a clinical provider. And we, specific have the, we specifically have the prerequisite of having people with those lived experiences receiving services, taking mm -hmm. those trainings rather than others that don't have that experience. Absolutely. Because we believe, because we believe that they are the very people that knows what it's like to go through the system problems that they've been through during their lifetimes of receiving services. And so the idea is to really have a training that fosters these discussions and to really be open about it so that it gives them an inspiration of hope to be able to carry what they learn from that training into their work in human services, regardless of which, which path they, they choose to do. Um, and, you know, I'm very thankful that I have um, a, an entire peer support team and supervisor that's in support of it, our executive leadership and grants manager and marketing communications person are all wonderful in helping us to create this type of change. Um, and we specifically talked about a specific framework called intentional peer support, which is yet another way of making the change that is uh, in terms of the framework of how we provide care to people, which really emphasizes heavily connection and mutuality in the relationship building with people that receive services, um, because it is a way that is more humane um, and that really, you know, produces more results in terms of the engagement with with the particular care or service. And we've already seen some strides with that over the past few years. 
so those are just a few of of some of the the many ways that we've you know been able to create the change and we're always evolving in our ways of doing so over time that's awesome that's awesome you know uh, evolution is key i think um, it is very important to always evaluate how we're doing things uh, because at any point in in time we can you know find something uh, that we can do better in our services, right? So uh, I commend you on everything that you're doing. Uh, Bakov is doing a great job. Now, Bakov is, is are, are they servicing Boston only, Massachusetts? Or? It's, it's within the entire greater Boston area. So there are various cities that surround Boston, um, mm -hmm. whether they're it's, I think geographically it's kind of complicated because there's Boston and then there's towns that are all part of Boston themselves. So it's like city names within a city. Okay. <laughs> and then there are also um, different cities that are outside of that area that are surrounding the entire greater Boston geographic space, mm -hmm. if you will. So Bay Cove has that entire area as their catchment area where they provide services. So it's just yeah. there. Perfect. Perfect. No, that's, uh, that's great. Hey, um, I, I, you know, in closing, I want to say thank you for your time. I really enjoyed our conversation. I hope you did too. Um, and my last piece of advice before we uh, say goodbye is always pay attention to the thoughts that are sitting in your mind, because that is what's going to be transferred into behavior. It, because the thoughts go, go, go through emotions and then emotions ultimately go in physical form and that's your behavior. So pay attention to what you're thinking about, pay, pay attention to the, to the thought energy that is in your mind and make sure that you're always staying positive and you're always growing. All right? And and, and might I just add one little thing also? Please um, do. I think, I think at the same time, it's, uh, you know, there are certain situations for many people where they are in circumstances where because of the lived experiences that they've had, that um, they're not always in the space of thinking positive. And I think, Absolutely. you know, the, re the reason for that, I think, is that that connection and mutuality piece often in, in the clinical system is missing. So yep. being able to have the safe space to talk about different things that they're going through, whether it's trauma, anxiety, even suicide and hearing voices and other things without um, being, you know, fearing that someone is going to immediately assume the worst of what they're going through, where they might have to be hospitalized or accept services that aren't helpful. So as important as it is to be in a positive mindset, it's equally important when we're supporting people to let them come to that in their own terms and to be able to really um, find, you know, have deeper conversations with people and get to really know who they are and how they come to know what they know. Um, and just through natural and organic conversation, you know, without always giving directives or advice um, can be a really, can be a really powerful way in terms of discovering for both you and them what is possible what can be possible for both of you in, in your lives so that's also equally important i 100 percent agree with you that's why i also talk about self-image and the first thing i uh, 
tell, I, I tell the person in front of me to do is to describe me their self-image because that is going to tell me what they think about their self and their confidence level, right? So it's, it goes back to what you're saying, you know, having that safe space, uh, going through things on their, on their own terms without give, being given directives. Um, it's, it's equally important uh, and I agree with you. All right. Thank you, Chris, for this valuable time. Uh, I hope the audience enjoyed it. Uh, I will be back with you soon with a different guest. Thank you and take care. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>